You may be seated. I forgot to say that yesterday at a wedding, and <laughs> halfway through, people are still standing up, looking around. I am also uh, not going to lie to you. I am tired because of preaching that wedding. So um, we'll make it through today by the power of the Holy Spirit, and only by the power of the Holy Spirit. So good morning. Thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series through the letter Second uh, Timothy, as we have just read. Um, as we do that, we see the, these letters, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, kind of building upon each other, as any letter should. If you're writing to somebody, that's how that works. You don't just skip around. It builds upon each other, uh, and each paragraph kind of leads into the next paragraph, and that's what we will see. Last week, Brian did an excellent job of breaking down these three analogies that we see in the previous verses in chapter 2, and he uses those to remind us, Paul does, that we are to be single-minded on the gospel, that we are to focus solely on that, not get distracted by all of these outside distractions and, and all of these outside pursuits and all of these things that don't really mean anything when it comes to our main purpose and our main goal and our main mission. But as soon as those things have been written by Paul, it's almost as if he wants to make sure Timothy does not get carried away by the human aspect of it all. It's almost as if he wants Timothy to be reminded, hey, it's not about you, Timothy. It's not about me, Paul. It's not about any of us. It is about Jesus. It is about Christ. He wants us to be reminded here, even as we read these words in 2019, that it is still not about us. And it will never be about anything except for the, the content of our message and the object of our worship and our efforts to proclaim this gospel. So imagine it like this. Paul is writing. And he's saying, and he, he's, I'm sure as he's writing, very passionately writing these words. If you can passionately write, I assume you can. But imagine Paul is writing saying, you must be like a soldier, Timothy. You must be a good soldier. You must be like a farmer, Timothy. You must be like an athlete, Timothy. Go, go, go. Single-minded focus. Laser focus. But as you go, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Do not go under your own strength. Do not go under your own power. Do not go thinking you have the answers. Remember Jesus Christ. Now this could have been a staunch warning not to forget and turn away from the faith, not to forget Jesus altogether. It would be a good reminder at this, during this time as the persecution is ramping up. Paul is writing from prison for this very reason. So the persecution is ramping up. It makes it that much harder to remain true to the gospel. It makes it that much easier to just kind of steer away from it and go, well, man, if I just keep my mouth shut, nothing bad happens to me. I can kind of believe but not say anything. And he's telling, maybe telling Timothy here, don't do that. Remember Jesus. He has given us a few names in the previous chapter that have turned away. They have turned away from the faith. However, uh, I, don't, I don't feel like that's exactly what we see fitting the narrative of this letter to Timothy himself. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he writes to Timothy that he is reminded of his sincere faith. This is to Timothy. Not his faith, but his sincere faith genuine, real deal faith. This sincere faith is what caused Paul to lay hands on Timothy, commending him to the ministry. He would not do that flippantly. 
This sincere faith is what caused Paul to peg Timothy as the pastor for the church at Ephesus, for which Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. This sincere faith is what made Paul call Timothy his son in the faith. Again, these are not things that Paul would do just flippantly and just say, well, yeah, whatever, you seem to be genuine. No, he, he, that means he has vetted Timothy. That means he has seen Timothy live, his sincere faith. He is reminded of it, and he even says it goes back generations. Your mother and your grandmother were faithful, and they poured into you, and it has paid off Timothy. Now, again, could it be a warning to Timothy not to fall away? Sure, we need that warning. We need that reminder. So if that's what you take away from today... Take that. Do not turn away from the true faith. But to me, it seems more like Paul is saying to Timothy, when you're being a diligent farmer, when you're being a motivated athlete, when you're being a committed soldier, do not forget where your strength and results actually come from. Remember Jesus daily. Remember Jesus hourly in ministry Uh, Your attitude towards it can change hour by hour, (laughs) depending on what phone call slash text slash email you receive. You may think, man, we're kind of killing this thing. Email, text, or call, and then go, or not, (laughs) or we are being killed by this thing. Either way, never forget Jesus. It is always about him. Do not take your focus off of him when you become arrogant about your results. Remember Jesus. When you become discouraged by your lack of results, remember Jesus. Both of these are so much easier said than done. So much easier said than done. I think about my work at Hope House. There's a few other people involved in that here, both on staff and voluntarily. First of all, thank you guys. But we're dealing with men a lot of times, some of which have struggled with addiction of varying kinds for for decades. I mean, 20, 30, 40 years of addiction to substances, to other things, all of these things for decades. And many of them don't quite make it. They flake out, they leave, they relapse, they, they do all of these things. Some of them graduate the program. It's a year of sobriety. They're drug tested. They're all of these things. And they have remained sober. And it's like the next day they just relapse. And you're like, did you ju- were you just recharging your addiction batteries? Like, what were you? You were sober for a whole year. What has happened? And you see them, and they, they don't even look the same, and you, they lie about it. And, like, it's, it's discouraging, to say the least. It's defeating, to be quite honest. And it's also just sad. It makes your heart ache for them because you're like, you, you had it in your grasp. And what you didn't do is remember Jesus Christ. And I begin to ask questions of myself, as I'm sure, again, my fellow staff members do. Am I doing any good? Have I really had any impact on anyone? Is there really any hope for any of these guys or myself? Because I keep going back to my sin like a dog goes back to his vomit as well. And I keep asking these questions. And it is in these moments of doubt, in these moments of regret and despair, in the what ifs, what if I had said this, or what if I had done that, maybe if I would given him one more hug, or one more high five, or one more pat on the back, Paul would say, remember Jesus Christ. It's not about you. And know what if you had done those things. 
because I'm in control of this thing. This is Jesus talking about Paul. Because Jesus is in control of these things. He would tell me that we may plant or water, but God brings the growth. We may cast the seed, throwing it everywhere, but God determines what soil it falls on. God determines if it takes root. God determines if those roots go far enough down and find water. Paul would tell me to stop thinking about myself so much and to remember Jesus Christ. And then he would give me two reasons to do so. One, why do we remember Jesus Christ? Why is he so important? Paul's reminding us here. One, he is risen from the dead. Note to self, that doesn't happen every day. He is risen from the dead. This means he has power over death. This means he is truly the Messiah that was promised years upon years upon years ago. This means he is truly the one who was promised. He is truly who he said he was. He proved it because he got up from his grave. But this also means, look, it doesn't say he was just raised. It says he is risen. This means he is alive right now. He did not raise himself just to die again. We saw a few people come back to life, right? Lazarus being one example. That brother dead again. I don't know when he died exactly. But it wasn't too long after that. He died again. Jesus did not. He is risen. He is still alive. That means he is still intervening in our lives today, in the events of the world today. Whether it's big things like Mother Nature or whether it's small things like how your day went today. He is intervening in our lives. He is still able to move in our lives. He is living and active. He is risen. Remember this Jesus. Also, on top of that, and these things couple together, so he is risen from the dead. He is truly who was sent. He is also the offspring of David. At first, you may read that and be like, yeah, okay, David's his great, 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 great grandfather. But 2 Samuel 7, 16 was the promise given to David. It says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This promise was to David from God himself, letting David know that it would be his offspring that would come and save the world. The Messiah, the chosen one, the one promised, the one we just talked about, risen from the dead. The Savior, the Lamb, he would be enthroned forever and he would come through the line of David so Timothy or Paul writing to Timothy is confirming this here but we also see this confirmed in Luke 1 31 through 33 when the angel tells Mary you're gonna have a son he will sit on the throne of who his father David so we have two verifications here that couple together that Jesus is who we should be remembering. Paul is saying here, remember King Jesus. He has the power to rule and reign in whatever he sees fit. He can make people believe or not. He can keep people sober or not. He has the power over death because he is alive. He has the power over life and everything living because he is the king forever. He is on the throne forever. So not only is he alive intervening, he is also the king in charge of everything. Remember this Jesus. This means Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do. No one tells the king what to do. And no one tells the king of the universe what to do. Now this does not, before we even start today, and I know you're thinking we've already started. This does not drive us to some sort of divine fatalism. 
I'm going to define that term. It is fatalism is the outlook on life that every event is predetermined and inevitable, a.k.a. we can't do anything about it. doesn't matter. If a house is going to burn down, it's going to burn down. If, if we're going to wreck a car, why have insurance? Whatever will be, will be. This is, this is fatalism. It doesn't matter what we do. Our actions don't even really have an effect on life. Not true. Now, I do believe in theory that to God, this is true. Whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. And he's not looking at, well, I wonder what Justin's going to do today. And I'll respond or react to that. Or I wonder what Mission Church is going to do as a whole. I was hoping to save a bunch of people, but they're not really pulling their weight. That's not how God acts. If you want to look at his actions as fatalism, like whatever will be, will be, that's fine because that, whatever he's going to do, he's going to do. Yes, but we don't know that. We don't know what he is going to do. Think of it, it's a very simple example. Think of it this way. God made gravity. And he said, this is how it's going to work. You drop something, it's not propped up by anything else, it's going to fall. Every time. This is not on earth. Every time. This is not a, well, if I jump off this building this time, maybe I can float, right? No, you know every time. And yet, I still have the ability that to drop the pin that I was going to hold that I don't have up here. So imagine there's a pin here. I still have the ability to drop this pin. I have the cognitive ability to decide drop it or don't drop it. I can still decide that. And in fact, and in reality, it does have an effect. Now, it may be a small effect because it's just a pin, but I had to pick it up or somebody else had to pick it up or who knows, maybe it bounces and pokes somebody's out, whatever. Okay, But it does have effects. Even though... God knew what I was going to choose, whether I would drop the pen or not drop the pen. He's already not responded to that, but planned around and through that to do whatever he's going to do. He is in control of the results, and this does not remove my cognitive ability to decide whether to drop the pen or not. He can override me, though. He can go, I can go, I'm going to drop this pen, and then my hand stops working, and I can't let go of it. But can I override gravity? Can I go, I'm going to drop this pin. I'll show you, God. It's going to float. Watch this. Now, I know we've seen America's Got Talent. Some of those people have sold their soul to the devil and the magic they do. Like, I'm not entirely sure what's going on there. That Shin Lin guy or whatever his name was, I ain't sure what he's doing. But anyway, I cannot override gravity. In the same regard, we have the choice to say, whatever will be, will be. God's going to save who God's going to save. That means I don't have to do anything. I'm going to sit on my butt and do nothing for the kingdom. Will that thwart God's plan? Not a drop. And yet, you will be held personally responsible for that decision. Because it was your decision. God didn't make you decide to be lazy. God didn't make you decide to be apathetic. God allowed you to make the decision to be disobedient. But he also said, gravity still exists and something will happen for your disobedience. Jesus has determined outcomes without being the author of sin and wrongdoing. Now that, that's King Jesus. That's the king of the universe. That he can go, you weren't supposed to drop, supposed to drop that pen. That was wrong. That was sinful. Watch me work. Watch me work, Joseph, being sold into slavery. Watch me work everyone who thinks you're on this track. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, you're on this track. Watch me work. Remember King Jesus. Paul goes on to remind Timothy. And us, that remembering this Jesus will have consequences. Again, what we do in reality has consequences, has effect, has results. 
What does he say? He specifically attributes his being in chains to the gospel here. It says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So he brings up the gospel. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. See, in the same vein, Paul could have said with his life, Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus. That was awesome. I'm saved. I'm good. And done nothing. Whatever will be, will be. God's going to do what God's going to do. He doesn't need me, which would be a true statement. So I'm just going to do whatever I want. Paul is the same author. Think about this. So in his mind, right here writing to Timothy, he's already written Romans. And it says in Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the first among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul knows he has no power to save anyone. Only Christ does that. And because Christ does that, he is going to save all of those he is going to save, regardless of what we do, regardless of what Paul does, regardless of what anyone does, God is going to save who God is going to save through Jesus, and not one will escape his grasp. Now this would have made life much easier for Paul, because think about it, he wasn't locked up for his beliefs. He was locked up for what he was saying, for what he was doing. He wouldn't shut up about the gospel. He could believe it all day long. No one was going to do anything. But he wouldn't stop talking about it. It was his continual preaching. He could have kept his mouth shut, said God will save who God's going to save. I'm good. Gone on about his merry way. He never would have gone to prison. Probably would have never been shipwrecked because he wouldn't have been traveling to those places. Probably wouldn't have been snake bitten. Probably wouldn't have been beaten. Probably wouldn't have been all of these things that he is suffering through. Could have avoided all of them. And it's not like Paul didn't know that. It's not like Paul thought, I don't know why these things keep happening. He knew why they were happening, and he could have stopped at any point in the midst of this. And yet here we see, very end of his life, going to die in prison. Remembering Jesus, proclaiming the risen Jesus, worshiping King Jesus will have real consequences in your life. That's the way it works. It's gravity. God has set it up that way. 2 Timothy 3.12, we'll get to that. Not today, some point. Says, indeed, all, in the original language, that means all, all of us, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, not maybe, not might be, will be persecuted. Now in America, we don't know exactly what that looks like because it's different all the time. It's ever-changing. But this means you. This means me. This means all of us who are truly, that's, here's the caveat, who are truly desiring to live a godly life courtesy of Christ are going to be persecuted in some way, shape, or form. Doesn't mean it's going to be like Paul. That's not what it's saying. Doesn't mean you're going to die for it. You might. So that's the bad news. All are going to be persecuted. All are going to suffer. We, ha we have to go through this if we are going to live a godly life. The good news is verse 9b. But the word of God is not bound. First of all, exclamation point at the end of that sentence. Those didn't exist in the original language. And yet Paul wrote it in a way that we know that he is exclaiming this. I am bound in chains like a criminal. But the word of God is not 
bound. It is not bound by these chains. It is not bound by death, by persecution, by the burning of books, by the killing of saints, by any of these efforts that have gone on since Jesus was alive to kill this rebellion, this movement, whatever you want to call it, to kill this religion, to kill this Christianity. It's not worked, and it's not going to work because God, they can bound me, they can bound you, they can bound all of these people, but the Word of God is not bound. It will, will go forth. Christ will be proclaimed. Christ will be king. Paul is exclaiming this truth from a jail cell. He is saying, this God, for this gospel I'm bound, but praise be to God, it doesn't matter. The word of God goes forth without me. The word of God goes forth because that's what the word of God is going to do. And this is why we remember Jesus. This is why we worship Jesus. Because the gates of hell, prison cells, burning of books, all of these things can't stop him. Can't put Jesus in jail. I mean, they did, but you get what I'm saying. Now, can't put Jesus in jail, okay? But how is this true, okay? That's what we want to look at. Paul is very clear, exclamation point, right? The word of God is not bound. Now, I want us to look at something very interesting that I overlooked as well. Thank you, John Piper. But the word of God is not bound. Now, verse 10 picks up. It says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That, so therefore and that, we've got to pay attention to that. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The reason we were looking at this a little closer is I think at first glance we read this and it seems to be saying... I'm in chains, but even though I'm in chains, the word of God keeps going. In spite of me being in chains, the word of God keeps going. But I think if you look closer, he says the word of God is not bound. Therefore, so read that as because, because the word of God is not bound, I endure all of these things for the sake of the elect. And then why does he do that? That's where the word that comes in. It doesn't end the sentence there. Because we could take that many different ways. We'll look at that in a moment. But I endure this imprisonment. I endure the ridicule. I endure the persecution. I endure losing my dignity. I endure losing all of any kind of uh, good life that I had going for me. I endure all of that so that they may obtain the salvation that they are promised. Because what does he call them? The elect, we'll get into that as well. So it would seem here that Paul is not saying, in spite of me being in chains, because I could be doing this, and I could be doing a heck of a job, because I'm awesome at it, but in spite of me being in chains, God's word is not bound. It seems to be saying that Paul is saying, precisely because I am in these chains, the word of God is doing what the word of God does. It is taking me out of the equation for those people, and if we look in a couple other places, Paul is saying, like, I'm here to save these guards. They thought they was just watching me. <laughs> Joke's on them. They done got saved. Right? Paul is saying, though, because I'm in chains, the word of God is going forth. Because I am in chains for the very gospel, that same gospel is going farther than if I weren't in these chains. I know that seems like an oxymoron. I know that seems like a paradox. Whatever. I, I get those mixed up. Whatever. Whatever. 
Seems contradictory. Okay? He knows that the enduring of the persecution in the face of the fact that he wouldn't even be in those chains if it weren't for proclaiming the gospel has an actual effect on the salvation of the elect because of the gospel for which he is in chains. I cannot say that again, so I hope you got the first time. But how's that for God determining the outcomes? How's that for gravity? How's that for God saying, you know what? Just drop the pen, don't drop the pen. I don't really care. I care, but it ain't going to really affect me because I'm going to do what I'm going to do. He's not saying here that his suffering well serves as a reminder or an example. If the sentence ended before the word that, that's what I would tell you today. Suffer well for an example for others that are suffering well. You suffer well, it gives them strength that if you can do it, I can do it. But that's not where the sentence ends. It says the word that after the comma means Paul suffering well actually in some way through God's sovereignty brings about the salvation of the elect. Bear with me. This means that somehow through God's sovereignty that there are some now remember through God's sovereignty there are some that would not experience salvation if Paul were not as he puts it enduring everything. His suffering serves a magnificent purpose a grander purpose. It is not Meaningless. This is why Paul is not writing Timothy, please get me out of here. Go to the law. Go to the... Please change my circumstances. He's saying, no, no, no. These circumstances are saving people. And that's okay. I'll stay in here if that's what it takes. The word of God is not bound. But how does it continue to spread? In this example and in all other examples. It doesn't grow legs. It doesn't speak itself. Someone's got to suffer to take it there. That may be across the street to your neighbor. And that may be across the ocean to India. It may be across the ocean to Kazakhstan. It may be, not that we know anybody doing that. It goes, anybody listening to this recording. But it may be to Niger. It may be to wherever. Somebody's got to take it there. The word of God goes through the open lips of those who believe it. Those who are remembering Jesus Christ. This is a command for us today. Proclaiming the gospel is not costless. It will cost us something. But whatever it does cost us is serving a grander purpose to bring sheep into the fold that are not yet in the fold. We see this in John 10, 16. Jesus himself says, and I have other sheep, meaning I've got the Jewish people covered. They, they know this truth. They know who I am, some of them. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So that sentence is not interesting to see here. That Jesus is saying more and more people are going to experience salvation. Of course they are. It's not interesting to see Jesus say that the work of salvation is ongoing. And his voice is who will save them. Of course it is. It is interesting is that he leaves. Soon after this, and I mean like leaves, leaves, like for good leaves. Like he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, leaves. He ain't around talking anymore. Anybody raise your hand in here, literally heard Jesus speak to them, like audibly in their ears. I didn't think so. He leaves. 
does that mean salvation is over? Does that mean I've not, I've not heard Jesus speak? Does that mean I can't experience salvation? Of course not. It means he delegates his voice. His voice flows through our mouth. His voice flows, hopefully today, through my mouth. His voice flows through your mouth. Sheep will hear that and they will believe. Because the word of God is not bound. His plan was always to delegate this task to his followers so that they could make disciples and then they could make disciples and then they could make disciples. And then here we are in 2019 sitting in a borrowed church talking about Jesus so we can remember Jesus because it is his voice that saves, not ours. The plan was always that people would take this engaging in the warfare that we talked about last week, engaging in the agriculture of the gospel like last week or the the sport of the gospel as an athlete. Now turn with me. I rarely do this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. So we will see this in action. A little intro while you turn there because we're, we're going to start in verse 5. We see here Paul is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. He's not having a whole lot of luck. Paul, of all people, not having a whole lot of luck. At the beginning of chapter 18, he's getting a little discouraged. He's Thinking about what his next move is going to be. Where do I go? Maybe I shouldn't go here. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not in the right place. Picking up in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So he was in the process of doing what he were talking about today. Remembering Christ as, Jesus as the Christ. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So we see God's work, right? Moving, moving. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, as Paul, Paul's wrestling through, I'm afraid of my, for my life. They're threatening me. They're, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I I just need you, God, to tell me what to do. Should I just move on? He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. So there's your spoken word. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. And pay close attention, for I have many in this city who are my people. Did Paul know who they were? God did, and he knew the work wasn't done. So he, he, Paul stayed for a year and six months teaching the word among them. But notice what God did not say. God did not go to Paul and be like, man, don't worry about it. You tried. Good, good, good effort, buddy. I'll take it from here. Don't send a boy to do a man's job, right? I'll get it. No. He sends Paul back in there. I have people in this city that are not mine yet, but they're mine. And I need you to go gather them. And you don't know who they are, so guess who you preach to? All of them. Whoever will listen. If they don't listen, they're not mine. He goes boldly speaking because it is going to do something. You see, this is where I think most people misconstrue what it is we believe when we say we are reformed and that God is in charge of salvation and God's sovereignty and grace. And Calvinistic, if you want to use that term. We don't use it here very much. But we believe God does all the work to save someone. Paul in 2 Timothy here uses the word elect. This means, if you 
take all of Scripture as to what that word means about the elect, okay? This means that Paul is talking about names who were written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And God doesn't pull out his eraser when Paul doesn't do his job. So their names are in there. Their names are settled. Their salvation is sure. It is ironclad, written in stone. God is going to save these people. Whoever they are. Because they are the elect. They are chosen. They are picked. They are predestined, preordained. All those words that we see in Scripture. And yet, we see Paul suffering to bring that about. Burdened for their salvation, even though they're going to get it no matter what he does, technically. We see Paul suffering to take the gospel to these sheep, to these elect, so they can hear it through the, or be saved through the hearing of the word. This is because Paul understands that the sureness of salvation for even the elect is not a ticket to vacation. So we could all sit in this room today and go, God's going to save who God's going to save. I don't have to do anything. And we would be technically right. Because God's not going, oh, man, that whole group was supposed to do something really big. He's not, he, he's not wringing his hand, well, I'll get somebody else. He already knew what we were going to decide. So technically, we could make that decision, and no one will be left out of the kingdom. But Paul is reminding Timothy, and he is reminding us, that God sovereignly dictated that the salvation of all, the elect, the ones he's going to save, would occur within the bounds of human means. This is how he set it up. Now, why, I don't know. Because leaving this up to us seems like a mistake. I'm not saying God made a mistake. I'm just saying right now it seems, all right? Seems like he could have maybe. Anyway, but while it is true that he could do it all by himself, without us being involved at all, even an iota, he doesn't. It's just not how he set it up. It's gravity. He could have set gravity up to work sometimes and not other times be a really confusing day but he could have but he didn't same thing here Paul says this elsewhere Romans 10 because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved skip down to verse 14 how then will they call on him whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in whom they have not, never heard how are they to hear without someone preaching how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says the Lord has be believed what has he heard from us so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ I can't be any more point blank than that scripture is. It tells us point blank that salvation comes from hearing the spoken word of the gospel. It has to be voiced. Does that mean God doesn't save people without that happening? I firmly believe that he does. People call these unreached people groups. God can just show up burning bush style to those people, speak their language. All of that can happen. But it doesn't that often. Most of the time it is someone suffering to take the word of God there. This is why we go. Because God has already ordained that some of those unreached people will be saved. They are already elect. They're not going to be elect. God's not going to decide to save them at a later date because we went. They're already there. Their salvation is sure. And yet we are to go. He's already ordained that they will be saved through the hearing of the gospel from human lips. Hopefully ours. This means that we can have confidence as we go declaring the gospel because it is guaranteed to work for those it's supposed to work for. And we don't know who they are. 
J.I. Packer puts it this way, and it's an outstanding book if you've not read it. It's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's actually not even that long. It's so good. Cannot recommend it high enough. It says in page 14, so this is the intro to the book basically. It says, I shall try to show further that far from inhibiting evangelism, because that's the slight against us reformed people, right? We all think God's just going to do what God's going to do, so y'all can just sit on your tuchus and do nothing. By the way, tuchus is spelled T-U-C-H-U-S. And I was really surprised by that. Anyway, um, that's not how I would have spelled it. All right, back to, uh, I shall try to show further that far from inhibiting evangelism, faith in the sovereignty of God's government and grace is the only thing that can sustain it. For it is the only thing that can give us the resilience that we need if we are to evangelize boldly and persistently and not be daunted by temporary setbacks. So far from being weakened by this faith, therefore, evangelism will inevitably be weak and lack staying power without it. Referring back to my example from the men suffering from addiction at Hope House. Statistically speaking, anybody want to guess if we've had more success or more failure by the world's standards in this venture? I don't think anybody would guess that we've had more success. The failures... Far outweigh. Now, we don't consider it failure because every last one of those dudes heard the gospel at least one time. Maybe, maybe hundreds, depending on how long they were there. And yet, if I thought for one second that their salvation really determ- was determined by what I did, I would never sleep at night. Or their sobriety, their continued sobriety was on me. First of all, I, I would sleep great at night because I would have already quit my job. And just done something else that doesn't have so much pressure on it. But what if someone's salvation was dependent on how well you presented the gospel? Wouldn't that be unneeded pressure? Especially when you don't. Right? Because then it, I guess the pressure's removed. D.A. Carson once said, a lady came up to him after he had spoken about evangelism she said I don't really like your method of evangelism he said oh I don't really like mine all the time either what's yours and she goes well I don't really have one he said I like mine better than yours (laughs) takes the pressure off if you don't do it but then you're disobedient because we are personally responsible for the decisions we make and because of this truth I can report back to work tomorrow Talk to these guys, knowing some will and some won't, and I don't know which ones they are. And I suffer with them that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Because some will and some won't. And that is why we can go on. That is why you can share the gospel at your jobs or wherever you go tomorrow with whoever you talk to because some will and some won't. This is the strength, this belief that God is in charge of the results and not my words being spoken exactly right. That is what allows us and gives us the strength to stick to it and persevere when discouragement can be found all around us. You don't have to work at Hope House to be discouraged by what's going on in the world or you've shared the gospel with somebody 50 times and they just won't listen. And it's like, what do I have to say? Just keep saying the gospel because that's what's going to work or not. And you don't know. But listen to Paul's words at the end of this letter. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Let Luke alone, alone is with me. Paul's sitting here in prison lamenting about one dude has stuck with him. One guy. 
Verse 16 in chapter 4 says, At my first defense, no one, not one person came to stand by me, but all deserted me. This is not a man removed from or saved from discouragement. Paul didn't have all the results. He didn't save everybody he talked to. He could have easily given up. He could have easily rested on his laurels and said, I'm saved. It's good enough. I'm going to heaven. Whatever happens, happens. Yet the staunchest reformed missionary that has ever lived, that's Paul, because he wrote all of these things talking about it. He believed wholeheartedly that God was in charge of salvation, suffered the most for it. He's the one that wrote words like predestination, foreordination, election, and God's saving grace. And then he goes to jail to spread that word. It's not that God limits himself to, human be- to what human beings can accomplish. He, like we see in Philippians 2, humbles himself in a way that most glorifies him and most benefits us. Furthermore, and this is King Jesus, he is so sovereign over those things that he is able to work through your worst gospel presentation. If you've never heard Matt Chandler talk about how he shared the gospel the first time after he, he used a fire-flavored Jolly Rancher and said, well, if you don't like fire, then you probably need to turn to Jesus because you're not going to like hell very much. And the dude became a Christian. Like, there's no way that would ever work. And the dude's a pastor at a church 20 years later. All right, that's a side note. God doesn't limit himself to how well you share the gospel. He humbles himself so that you will share the gospel. That way it shows what you really believe. You believe in parachutes? Jump out of a plane. You believe in a chair? Sit in it. You believe in Jesus? Talk about him. Remember Jesus Christ. He's risen from the dead. He is the offspring of David. He's able to work through your disobedience, through your fears, through your failures, through all of those things because of gravity. He set it up. He knows what's going to happen. He is going to bring it to fruition. He is just calling you to be faithful and obedient. Jesus in John 17 is praying and he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be filled. Not one. No one is lost that is not supposed to be. No one is saved that shouldn't be. No matter what you do or don't say, do or don't do, say or don't say, The Bible is very clear that you will be held personally responsible for your obedience or your disobedience. This is why Paul goes on to write here at the very end of this section. For the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we die with him, we will live. We all understand that through the gospel. If we endure to the end, we persevere to the end, we will reign with him in heaven. We all understand that through the gospel. This is the promise the gospel gives and nothing can thwart that. Then if we deny him, he will deny us. We've read that in other parts of the scripture. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you in front of my father, right? But then something interesting happens. It says, if you remain faithless, I'll remain faithful. Doesn't really matter what you do. I'm going to do what I do. This statement could be twofold. One, if we deny him, then he will deny us. Meaning, in other words, if we are faithless and remain faithless, truly faithless, we don't believe in Jesus, he will remain faithful to sending you to hell. That's as blunt as I can put it. He said that's what's going to happen. It's gravity. It's going to happen. So you turn to Jesus in repentance, or there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and utter darkness. He will remain faithless because he is just, because he has to do that. Because he cannot deny himself. But two. Two. 
If we are faithless, meaning not eternally faithless, not I've never turned to Jesus in true repentance and faith, but if we are faithless that God could ever save that person or that God could ever use me to save anybody or that I'm anybody worth anything in sharing the gospel in the kingdom of God and I can't do it. If we are faithless that God can do it even through us, He's still going to do it because He's faithful. And he said, before the foundation of the world, these are my people, and I'm going to go get them. I want you to be involved, but also know whether you're going to or not. And I'm going to save them, because I remain faithful. It doesn't matter what you do technically in my plan. It does matter what you do personally for your obedience. So the point here today is truly the simplest I can make it. Preach the gospel. That's it. That's the whole thing. Suffer for the sake of the elect. We have assurance that it will work because of the sovereignty of God. We have assurance that those who are to be saved will be. We have confidence that our proclamation will not be in vain. And since we don't know which is which, who do we proclaim it to? Whoever will listen. If they have ears, you preach it to them. If they don't have ears, get somebody that knows sign language. Because they can hear the gospel. Show them this if they know how to read as Charles Spurgeon, who fully could not have more believed in the grace of God and salvation. He's like Paul, very much so, and yet he suffered for the gospel as well. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. It says, if God would have painted a yellow stripe down the backs of the elect, then I would go around lifting up shirts. But since he didn't, I must preach a whosoever will gospel, and then whosoever believes, I know they're elect. How simple is that? That is 2 plus 2 equals 4, if I've ever heard it. We just go talking about Jesus to everybody. Don't care if you're elect or not because there's no way I'm ever going to know that. Preach it to everybody and then go, oh, you believe it? You must have been elect. God wrote your name down a long, long time ago. And that, then you go to the next person. Tell them the same thing. Preach the gospel. And then as you get encouraged by results or discouraged by the lack thereof, what do you do? You remember Jesus Christ because he's in charge of the results. You remember Jesus Christ because he's risen from the dead. He's the offspring of David. He is who he says he is. Whether you're faithful or not, he remains faithful. Preach the gospel. Remember Jesus. Let's pray.